if you can live off the down payments and your monthly cash flow just stacks up in the bank account, I mean, why would you ever sell a note? All right, welcome to another interview at Deals Today podcast. And I am your host, Paul, at realestateaudios.com. And we're going to be chatting with Mitch Steven at 1000houses.com. And the reason why his URL is 1000houses, because at the time he flipped over 1000 houses. Today, he's flipped over 2000 houses. He flips about 100 a year. And he's been doing this for 26 years at the time of this recording. So what does he do? Does he traditionally flip, because the title says that it's a no maintenance, no no tenant cash flow. And he doesn't do the traditional buy and hold. You buy it and you rent it out. He sells them and he sells them on payments. And he creates that steady cash flow with absolutely no maintenance in place, absolutely no tenants in place. And he's developed over the, over the years, he's developed his own structure to find money, to pay off these private lenders, to fund these deals, to find the deals, and to find the buyers, and to get them to make the payments to him and what kind of percentage and down payment. We're going to talk about all that, his whole model of doing this why he does it, and what he does for the long-term wealth. Because you might be thinking, well, that only lasts for 10, 20, 30 years. Well, he does have something on the back end that he does for creating that long-term wealth, and that is storage facilities. And we talk a little bit about that towards the end. So tune in for the whole thing. And of course, if you're not on my email list, go to realestateaudios.com where you can get my newsletter, a few free gifts on marketing, copywriting. And yeah, let's get to it. Mitch, in your blog, you talk about how in your first year you did about 45 houses. That's quite a, an achievement. How did you go about doing that? 45 houses in one year. People struggled getting one house in one year. My biggest problem was funding, but then it was also a different time back then when if you had good credit, you could apply for any credit card and they just checked your credit. And if you had good credit, they gave you the credit card with all the cash advanced maximum limits and everything. So I learned real quick that I could apply. I applied for like 45 credit cards and I got all of them and I had great credit. Even through all my business failures, I always paid everyone back and I never missed my payments. I kept my name. It was very important to me and it paid off because I had 45 credit cards that if I wanted to take a week to go collect the cash advances off of all of them, I could put like $500,000 on my kitchen table and no one would loan me any money because I didn't have a track record. You know, I had good credit, but I didn't have a track record. I wasn't bankable. I hadn't been in the business. So I just used those credit cards to buy all those houses. And, and, and again, it was another time. In San Antonio back then, you could buy a house in the lesser neighborhoods, the lesser parts of town for 15, 20,000 bucks. So I would go get 10,000 off of this card and 10,000 off of that card and buy the house. And then I'd get 10,000 off another card and I'd rehab the house. And so I'd have 30,000 of zero interest, no payments for 12 months or 18 months or six months. And I would just sell those houses on owner finance notes and then sell the notes simultaneously when I created it to a some note brokers in town and I would get 83 to 90% of the note value and I'd get 5% down and a 5% throwaway second, which I never threw away. And I did it 450 times in a row. So you said 80 to 90%. So, you know, I've heard maybe, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I've heard in the note business, you can only sell notes at 65% of the value. So how did you, how did you end up selling at 80, 90%? It was a different time. Associates was in business. They were a division of Ford Motor Credit and they were paying 
83 to 87% on up to 93% if it had any kind of seasoning. I was selling these notes at 87% of their face value without collecting the first payment. So wow. actually how my buyers got approved was I would send in their application, you know, that had their social and everything on it. Then I would describe the house and its values. And then I would decide describe the note that I wanted to make. And I'd say, if I make this note on this house to this guy, how much will you pay me for the note before I collect one payment? And if I like the number, then my buyer was approved. And if I didn't like the number, I found someone else. And then we, we would go. And sometimes I would even buy the house, sell that house on a note and sell the note at the same closing. That's a pretty complicated uh, process for your first, you're, you're 23 years old at the time getting started in this. Did you have a mentor to show you the ropes on this? At the time, there was still Ron Legrand and Lou Brown. And I had been reading the old timers, Dave Del Dadio and Jimmy Napier and Nothing Down by Robert Allen. And so I had these seeds planted into me that you could, you could make things work if you were a coyote. You know, you had to be kind of like a coyote. You had to figure out how to survive. And I missed a lot of deals because I couldn't do a lot of things, but I wasn't concerned with the deals that I missed. I was concerned with the deals that I could do. So I had a job for a little while and I, I put $35,000 in the bank, which is how much I made a year bartending. Then I quit in March of 1996 to see what I could do if I worked full time. And I did 45 houses that first year. The second year I did 65 houses. In the third year, I did 150 houses with a partner and uh, Sam Madrid. He's Sam Ombre in my book. Then we found out 150 houses was was too much because we made a lot of money, but our systems were, we sucked at systems and we didn't have the right infrastructure and all this. And so a lot of that money was going out the back door and being lost with contractors and all that. So, and Ron Legrand was actually the one that told me to do half as many houses and make more money and have a life. So I went back to just cutting back and then and then I've done about 100 houses a year for over two decades. That's a house about every four to five days for, for over two decades. Has your methodology changed since then? Everything changed. It's been, it's been changing since the day I started, and it's changing every day as we speak. You know, it's about being a coyote a little bit. You've got to, if the place you're at's not providing enough food, you got to move around. You got to figure out where it is. You got to keep morphing. That's what Failing Forward to Financial Freedom, my first book, My Life in a Thousand Houses, Failing Forward to Financial Freedom, that's what it was about. It was about how I kept morphing from moving from pain to pleasure. You know, if something hurt me, I'd sit down and pick myself up, dust myself off and go, that hurt. How do I keep that from happening again? And then if something happened good, I would sit down and say, how do I make that happen more often and more frequently, you know, and put up some numbers? How do I multiply that? So it's just all about morphing. Laws change associates closed. When associates closed, I had sold uh, 97 houses of the 150 and I had 53 houses in my inventory. And then associates closed because there was too much fraud in the secondary subprime note business. And so they closed and it didn't matter who you sold your notes to. At the end of the day, they all ended up at associates. So what happened effectively is note buying died in the whole country for about four years. Was this the crash? Was this during the crash or after, after the crash? No, it was just they just got tired of doing it. It was a Tuesday. We called it Black Tuesday. And I think it was like 2001 or 2002. It was a good time. Just associates was getting frauded so bad. People were fixing up the outside of houses and making straw buyers and then creating false notes and then selling 10 or 12 of them to them and then making the payment for a month or two until they had 15 of them. And then they'd sell the whole bundle 
and then no paint then the payment stream would stop because these bullshit investors these scam investors would get their big money their big payoff and then they quit making payments and then associates would go to that house and open the front door and the floor was dirt there wasn't anything inside the house because they were buying these notes on drive-by appraisals because you know we didn't own the houses anymore so we couldn't go in the house it wasn't our house so they were doing drive-bys and just looking at the outside of the house well the the crooks the bad apples caught on to that and started manipulating them and then they quit but what happened was I had these 53 houses and my end game had terminated. It wasn't the same game anymore. The, the game just stopped on one day. I had no place to sell my notes. So I got in a panic and I went, I said, well, the first thing I gotta do is I got to load all these houses because I can't just sit here making payments on all these houses if I'm going to expect to survive. So I loaded all these houses back then with, you know, about 10% down, which was around 3000 or 3,500. So I loaded 50 houses at 3000 a piece. So I had 150,000 in the bank. And then I was clearing like 350 to 400 a house back then. And so I had 25,000 coming in every month positive between what I owed. The problem was I had short-term notes. So then I had to go back and renegotiate or find private lenders. And that's when I learned to find private lenders because I got my ass in a crack. I, could, I, I had to find them. So I went and found people to take me out of these six-month notes, by the way, 18% in the $2,000 kicker because I was turning these houses so fast that the people that loaned me money had to get a very high interest rate and they even had to get a $2,000 kicker because they were only in the deal for eight weeks or four weeks. So I had to get out from under that money. And I did. I got longer term money that I was allowed to wrap. And that's how I morphed into the business I'm in. Not because I dreamt it up. It's because I didn't have a choice. So those 53 in inventory, those are all tied up with credit cards still. Or basically a hard money lender, 18% and a $2,000 kicker. The cool thing was I didn't have to make payments. The 18% accrued because I was selling these houses within a month or two of when I got them. So the guy said, I don't even want to keep up with the payments. Just let it accrue. And when you sell the note, we'll settle up with whatever percentage of that 18% you owe me and the $2,000 kicker. The most I ever made in that one month was $93,000 net profit. But I was giving 50% away to anybody who brought the deal. That was 50 cents on a dollar. And I had a partner. And so we were making 50%, which meant he got 25% and I got 25%. My 25% was worth $93,000. You, you sold these off pretty quickly. Is that still a trend today, selling these with your, with your own owner financing in place? Not to institutions or to institutional note buyers, but I learned how to sell notes to private people where I still collect for them through my servicing company. I still know what's going on. I still know if these people are late. I still manage the notes for them, but I could cash out. You know what I mean? I'm not obligated to buy the note back, but a lot of times I wanted to buy the notes back because these people had done such great improvements to the houses or whatever, or I could just reload the house for my note buyer and be like a knight on a white horse. You know, I, I, I was just like too good to be true because I would watch it all. And if there was anything go bad with the notes, I would go by and talk to the people and get it straightened out. Or I'd go through the foreclosure and tell my people, you're not going to get a payment for the next three or four months, but then we're going to get another down payment. You know, you'd probably be able to be made whole from there and we'll get a new buyer. And I'll probably be able to keep some of that down payment myself for my effort. So it wasn't all just out of the greatness of my heart. I was also getting paid because I would get I would get paid some of that down payment too to do the right thing. So was your name or entity still on that note or you completely, was it uh, the word hypothecated? Did you hypothecate these notes? No, I sold the notes, but I would keep like the last two years of the payments. So I still had an interest in the note. 
so that if I had to resell it and reload it, I could do it without a real estate license because I still had an interest in the note. I was still owed two years. Was that a, also a help with taxes with the capital gains tax when you do sell it because you're still attached to it? No, selling a note's not protected by capital gains. You know, I, I had to pay my tax when I sold the note to begin with. But the point was, I never really sold many notes after that because when associates closed and I had to load those 53 houses myself, this big light bulb went off. I, I kept the down payments. I had no, none of my money in these houses, not a penny. I had 150000 in down payments in my bank account and I had $25,000 a month coming in. And I thought to myself, why the hell did I ever sell a note? What was I doing? I didn't invent that either. I mean, I just learned about it and was decently savvy enough to recognize Hell, if you can live off the down payments and your monthly cash flow just stacks up in the bank account, I mean, why would you ever sell a note? So when you started moving to more private lenders for the acquisitions part of it, how was the deal cut? I mean, you might have briefly mentioned it, but I didn't quite get it. How did you? How does that all work out with your private lender in place in the front end acquiring these properties? Before COVID, I had $26 million I owed to private lenders that was out on the street. They all signed, you know, in the loan that I could wrap the mortgage, which meant I could sell this house on payments to someone else and not have to pay them off. So I will buy the house, say, I'm just using some round numbers, you know, that were close. So don't, don't split hairs on the numbers. Just understand the theory. I would buy the house for 55000 or $53,000. So I would go borrow from a private lender, 55000 I would always borrow 2000 more than what I needed to buy it close it and fix it. Whatever that number was, I always borrowed 2000 more because it cost me about 2000 to find that seller. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but on average. And if I, if I was buying 100 houses a year and I was leaving 2000 worth of advertising in every house, that was 200000 a year. And in five years, it's a million bucks. So, you know, and you can't borrow the extra 2000 if you're going to banks or hard money lenders, they won't let it happen. But private people, I'm still only borrowing 65% or less of what I could own or finance the house for. I average borrowing 58% of what I can sell the house for. That's my average, but I won't go over, I won't borrow over 65. So I borrow 55,000 and let's say is 8% and my payment was 350. Then I'd sell the house for 100,000 with 10,000 down. That 10,000 went in my pocket because I didn't have any money in the house. And that's what I would buy my groceries and make my mortgage payment and pay my car payment or whatever. And then I'd sell a house and carry the 90,000 at 30 years at 10%. So I was um, making 2% on my borrowed money, but I was making the full 10% on the difference between 55 and 90. And so today I only have about 18 or 20 million out because during COVID, as people would pay me off, and I, I don't ever ask people to pay me off. I don't want people to pay me off. I want them to go the whole 30 years, but people still pay me off. So as people would pay me off, some of my lenders in COVID elected to hold on to their money for a little while and keep some of their powder dry because no one knew what COVID was going to do. And so I went from 26 million out on the street to maybe 18 or 20 right now today, but they're coming back now because my business, the owner finance business is a very durable and very dependable cash flow because I don't have any liabilities of a landlord. You know, you understand this because you do it. When I sell that house and I'm supposed to get 850 a month coming in and I owe 350 to my private lender, I'm keeping that 500 in the middle and there's, you know, if the air conditioner breaks or the hot water heater goes out, it's not my house. I sold it to these people on payments. So when the mortgage payment comes in, there's very little reasons for it to go back out. In fact, the only reason is 
to foreclose. If I have to foreclose, then I may have to spend a little money, but I'm going to go find another buyer with another down payment. And I usually get made more than whole on the turnaround. So it's been a very beautiful strategy. It, it, it actually booms in the recession. In the recession, because I didn't need a bank to buy houses, I was buying houses at 50% of what they were worth 30 days ago because of the recession. And I was selling them for higher than I'd ever sold them before because when no one can buy a house, they got to rent a house during the recession. And when everyone's renting houses because no one can buy a house because the banks are basically not lending, then there's a lot of pressures put on rents. And so the rents are going up. Well, my owner finance value or my owner finance formula is based on the rents. So in the recession, this really weird dynamic happens. The prices drop like a rock. And so I'm buying houses at super low prices, but the rents go up because everyone's a renter. And so I'm selling them based on the rents. So it creates this huge disparity. And the thing that makes it work is I don't need a bank to buy the houses because I have private lenders. And my buyer doesn't need a bank to buy my house because I'm giving him the loan. So I don't need a bank on either end at a time when banks are closed. That's when I just boom like crazy. I was buying a house a day in the 2008 recession. And does the um, time to sell change or uh, increase when there's a when banks are lending like crazy? You know, you got to make up your mind. Are you in the new loan business or are you in the owner finance business? Because they don't mix. I tried to put people in on notes and then get them to refinance later so I could get my big hit. And what happens is, first of all, I could sell in the recession. I was selling hundred over 100% over the market. I was buying houses from 15-year-ago prices during the recession. You know, the prices had gotten up to here. The recession hit. They fell down to here. I was buying them here, but I was selling them for 59000 within nine days. And so I was selling 100% over the traditional comps. How I was doing that was my buyers don't have a choice to go get a new loan. Their choice is, do you want to pay $1,100 a month to rent that house across the street? Or do you want to pay $1,100 a month to own this one right here, just like the one you're living in across the street? The difference is you got to have 10% or more as a down payment, and I will consider you. And so there's not a lot of people offering that. I average 12% down in nine days on the market. And during COVID right now, I'm averaging four days on the market. What'd you do to change with the Dodd-Frank laws? What do you do to stay within the, those laws? Hey, what city are you in? I'm in Southern California, Chino, California, right next to LA. First thing is a lot of people ran out of the business because it was 2,500 pages and no one understood it. And I started to get out of the business because I'm not a big fan of regulation and paperwork. I'm a simple guy. But there was just, I made too much money. I thought, you know, I can't just throw this thing in the trash over there. How much does it take, you know, out of my profit? How much is it going to take for me to conform? So the first question was, how do I conform? So I just called, we just called the Savings and Loan Commission and got a hold of the commissioner that that was had jurisdiction over seller financiers like me and said, what the hell does this mean? And what do I got to do? Of course, they're kind of like the IRS. They don't want to give you an answer. They're not responsible for any answers they give you. But we at least showed that we were trying to conform. And then we would call them and ask them questions. You know, well, what about this part? You know, it took a while. But finally, some lawyers came on board that had actually read the 125, I mean, the 2,500 pages and actually had an opinion on it of what to do. And then we would call the commissioner and say, are we reading this right? Can we do this? You know, and 
And then they did allow us by grace to hire a third party RMLO. So I didn't have to be licensed or I didn't have to have a full-time employee that only worked for me be licensed. So they gave us grace and they're still giving us grace to this day. And I just learned to conform. So what happened before Dodd-Frank was I could meet a buyer at eight in the morning. I could show them the house. They could like the house. We could go to the office at 10 o'clock. We could discuss the numbers. We could all agree. They could go to lunch and go pick up their down payment while I was eating lunch and doing the paperwork. They'd show back up at one o'clock. They'd give me their down payment. We'd sign the papers and I could give them their keys. And they were in the house by five o'clock that afternoon with zero closing costs. All God Frank did is now it cost them 1800 bucks and it takes 21 days. And, you know, I just had to adapt. I understand with all this that you're making, you're also moving that money over to storage facilities, right? You're buying for storage, you own storage facilities currently, right? Yeah. So here's the problem. One-time cash events. I'm quoting Jack Bosch here from the book Forever Cash. You got one-time cash, you got temporary cash, and you got forever cash. Direct quote from Jack Bosch uh, in the book Forever Cash. And I like the way he puts it, so I'm going to use him. One-time cash events are wholesales or fix and flips, you know, got a house, do the deal, it's over, you got paid one time. Temporary cash is like the note business. You buy a house, you get a down payment, you collect payments for a long time, and eventually they pay you off. But it's a temporary cash stream, right? It's temporary because all notes expire or get paid off. The average note, even if you make a 30-year note, the average note is only going to last seven and a half years in the United States as an average. Maybe in the economic echelon that I deal in, the notes may last 10 or 11 or 12 years. I'm not sure, but they last a little longer because my people are not apt to go out and refinance. And so it's a temporary cash stream. So I learned early on to work myself out of a job. I had to take all the money that I was making from the one-time cash events and the temporary cash events. And I had to buy into a forever cash flow stream. And I chose storages, boat storages on dry land, you know, dry storage. They just like build little garages they pull into and shut the door and leave the lake or mini storages where they store their household goods or covered parking or open parking. But when I bought a storage facility, that facility was mine until I said it was over. It continues to collect rent and continues to pay me till I decide to sell that place. So that was a forever play. So that's the thing. Is this uh, with your students? I mean, you teach them this exact model, how to do it from A to Z. I mean, do you even instruct them to start buying storage facilities with these one-time temporary cash flow? Well, it, let's face it. With students, we got to do you know just-in-time learning or, or, or we just need to progress from where you're at. The first thing about that is you got to learn how to make a lot of money to buy this stuff. You know, you got to learn how to make some money. I mean, I'll teach, I'll talk or teach whatever they want, whatever level they're at. And if they want to talk about storages, I'll talk about it. But usually I'm just trying to get them to a point where, the, first of all, they can quit their job so they can get a hundred, an extra 2,600 hours a year to devote to themselves and their family and becoming an expert at whatever they're passionate about. And then the next level at that is to, to build wealth. And then the next level after that is to preserve it by buying forever cash things. So usually by the time people start making money. They've got their own ideas. They might be going into apartments or strip centers or whatever, developing land or whatever. But, you know, I'll talk to people about anything they want to talk about. In the event that five years into their note payments, they lose their job, something catastrophic happens. You kind of briefly mentioned this, but then how do you set the course so you don't, you can avoid the whole foreclosure process? I don't. I put myself as a lien holder and they owe me a note and I have a lien on their property. And the deal is we live in two different states. 
my foreclosure process in Georgia's foreclosure process, Texas and Georgia, about the fastest foreclosure process in the world, Mississippi. The flyover states seem to have not lost their freaking minds and still give the guy putting up the money some rights. In the liberal states, they give all the rights to the tenant who has nothing committed to anything, which doesn't make any sense to me. So my seller finance strategy won't work in places nearly as well or even at all in states where you can't get someone out of a house in a reasonable period of time. Can't do it in Florida, but there's other ways to do it, like you're suggesting. In Florida, there's a way to do it. It's not my way, but I know the way. In California, there's lease options and a bunch of stuff. But still, if you've got to go in front of a judge to get this stuff done, if those judges are liberal and bleeding hearts, then, you know, oh, it's Christmas or it's snowing. We got to, and she's pregnant. We got to leave them in there for another six months. It's like, where the hell does it say that in the statute? Did I misread it? But you can't argue with a judge. So you got to go someplace where laws are interpreted a little more conservatively. Are, Are some of your students doing this outside of their home state? Yes. Now, it's a bigger challenge. But if you learn to develop a market from afar, then you actually have a real business. Because if you're in California doing houses in Georgia, you have to come up with a real business. You're going to create a real business. A little more challenging, but at the end of the day, you have created a business that you work on, not in. And therefore, you enjoy the ultimate freedom of owning a business. A lot of businesses, owners are running on a hamster wheel and they're just glorified employees with all the liability. How can, I mean, I love the information and uh, how do people get in touch with you and, and find you? And you just go to 1000houses.com, 1000houses.com. You can find my 1000houses.com podcast, all my books, my blogs. I got tons of free stuff there. Uh, my YouTube channel, everything in the world is there. 1000houses.com. And that'll be in the show notes as well. All right, Mitch, I appreciate you being on here. I really do. I mean, that was a load of information. I love hearing another guy that does owner finance. I mean, in a, in a much bigger world than, than I'm involved with, but I love hearing all the, all the nicks and crannies of it. Yeah, well, you don't have to do a lot to be successful. And just always remember, I've been in the business a very long time. These things didn't happen overnight. It was just right. one step at a time, one progression at a time. And then I, if you ask me if I would have ever believed where I'm at, you know, 20 years ago, I'd I didn't see this at all. I never set goals. I only set the challenge of being better, me as a person and my business being better than it was last year. That's that's what I do. And it's led me this far so far. All right, Mitch. I appreciate you being on here. We'll, We'll keep in touch. Thank you. Bye now. All right. That's another episode in the can. And stay tuned for the next one and my marketing tidbits every single week on the Deals Today podcast. Make sure you subscribe, you rate it, you review it, and you share it, please. It keeps me going with this. It gets more guests on the show. And if you haven't, if you're not on my email list, go to realestateaudios.com, subscribe there to get onto my daily newsletter where I give daily mindset, business, marketing, copywriting tips, all for real estate investors right there and any special gifts I'm giving away. Go on to realestateaudios.com.